then when you see like um when he's got the party the the swinging party in his apartment and um and then the uh the the one of the dogs was in there which was probably now watching it the the uh the hellhound mm-hmm. um does take you out of the movie because at least when you watch like an original cut of it like you can see like the the animation like is pretty pretty bad oh right because um, it wasn't practical yeah yeah so so you can almost see like the um like the the film cells like with the with the dog on it like you know kind of like a opaque background or whatever it's like it kind of takes you out of it a little bit now when right. it chases them down to uh i think tavern on the green Mm-hmm. and um and that's and and that's one of my favorite scenes too is, is like when he chases him there and he's like ah and everybody in the restaurant just looks over and then he slides down they were like meh and then they just go back to eating and it's like dude there's a guy out there in trouble somebody yeah. somebody help him and that's just like kind of personifies like the whole new yorker like ah, i'm only looking out for myself attitude mm-hmm. apparently you know well, we're too that, opulent in this restaurant to help come out and help a suffering person yeah and that's what i thought was so unique about the storyline to ghostbusters 2 was because it was the opposite of that it was now everybody's coming together to you know fix this situation but one thing i really found weird about that scene was so he the dog jumps through the wall right in in his apartment everybody's noticing that something just happened, right? They see the wall exploding or whatever. They they like jump or they're scared. When they get down to the bottom and the dog jumps out of the, the door, the doorman there acknowledges the dog, right? He reacts to that physically. But when they get to the restaurant, when they're at Tavern on the Green, I feel like the people aren't seeing the dog. Right. That they're just seeing this guy and he's freaking out and he's not like in danger. He's just some guy that's kind of out of his mind, which right. still go help him. But it was like all of a sudden nobody could see the dog. Yeah, that's one thing that I noticed, too, is, is like when you get to that scene, like and he slides down the window and they go back to eating. You don't see the dog like approaching like you're like a head on point of view to like yeah. come like hunt him down or anything. So it's like was was he really there was he did he turn into like a an apparition or something or did they just not show because i mean he had to obviously like somehow uh like like physically acquire him and bring him back up to the top of the building or or right. something like that in order to transform him into the uh into the 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 gatekeeper or the key master i can't remember which one he was he the, was the key master because the he key master penis, yeah. right um but um the again the, again another penis and vagina joke right key master gatekeeper right again very un- unwitting as a kid understanding what they were talking about but but then like seeing that as an adult and you're just kind of like okay so rick moranis and sigourney weaver kind of together as being like the two like they're possessed and like like they're supposed to be like i don't know i guess fucking each other and it's like all right, that's weird. That doesn't go together. Like, because these yeah. two weren't romantically linked at all. Um, mm-hmm. If anything, she was repulsed by him and trying to stay away from him um, through the whole beginning of the movie. Um, well, if I understand it right, it's that they were just the physical vessels for right. uh, the the two entities that needed to hook up to open the portal for Gozer. Right. So, so they did. So they, they were just so they selected. did hook up. Yeah, so they, they did. 
Yeah, because so, you, you see them on that big uh, altar outside uh, with the wind blowing and, and uh, Sigourney Weaver like pops up and she's running her hands through her hair. And there's Lewis Tully just looking like he got hit by a truck. <laughs> he was probably like best sex of his life and he doesn't even remember it. Best but, only. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that the other thing, too, which I think is kind of a throwaway scene or you blink and you miss it. Was when. Lewis runs out of his apartment and the dog crashes through the door and he's like he's up against like the the wall or something before running away and the dog is snarling and the old woman comes out of the apartment and she sees him she goes oh and then she just goes back <laughs> in. Like, it's one of those things that it's like you blink and you miss it but it's so funny because it's just like they're probably like some extra like okay just walk out in the hall you see this growling dog and you're like fuck and you just right yeah but and it's those, like she comes on she's like oh and, and those are the little okay. gems that really make for one they add a, a sense of realism to it right you hear a noise you're going to look through your peephole or open the door and see what's going on you know yeah. but because if none of that stuff happened it would feel more like a film set yeah like why is nobody doing anything how come nobody's screaming or coming out and finding out what the noise is about you know like why is nothing else happening except to these people yeah you know, the other the other thing I like, though, about the uh, gatekeeper keymaster scene was when uh, Lewis gets away, when he breaks away from Egon and he gets back to the building and he walks into the room, he's just kind of standing there looking completely freaked out with his arms like at his sides, but not at his sides, like s- stretched out. Yeah. And he just lo- like his hair's blown. His face is dirty. He just looks like he's completely freaking out. And he's going to hook up with with uh, with with uh, Dana. Yeah, and like you could not look any worse at this point, trying to attract a mate, and so but- out. <laughs> like it's just like such a classic look, you know. And that is another scene which um, is like a um, another another quotable of mine with um, um like I said, my friend from work. Which if we were going to the break room and we would just be like. Hey, there's some, you know, there's there's some food out here. And he turned to me and be like, yes, have some. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> we would say that all the time to each other. We'd just be like, yes, have some. If we were like offering each other like some, like if we, I don't know, brought in like or we're sharing something, he goes, yes, have some. <laughs> oh, it's perfect. Yeah. And I, I like, just, you want some, you want some coffee, Mr. Tully? Do I want some coffee? Yes, have some. Yes, have some. As soon as you said that, I just pictured the pasta colander with the wires on it that they put on his head. (laughs) And then on the TV screen is like the 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 heat radiated image of like the dog, the dog. Yeah. And I remember seeing that and being like, dude, that's huge. Why doesn't anybody mentioning that? (laughs) Right. Yeah. Well, I just thought it was really well done the way that they tracked it to Lewis's movements. Yeah, like when he turned his head, the dog turned his head. When he stopped, the dog stopped. Like that was like shot for shot. Yeah, so like a well cool done. little, a cool little kind of aside, you know, an Easter egg or whatever. And, like, and again, we're talking 1984, where we had effects, but I mean, compared to what we could do now, yeah, you know, I just saw a video last night of um, a, a scene from Rain Man, where it's Tom Cruise, and instead of Dustin Hoffman, it was Arnold Schwarzenegger, face voice everything they just superimposed arnold over dustin using his dialogue switched it to arnold's voice huh. and you would think arnold was in that movie i mean it wasn't 100 percent perfect but that's where we're at now yeah 
you know well it's 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 just like with uh um what do they call the deep fakes yeah right i mean those things are the first time i saw that i think it was the tom cruise one is the most famous one and i was like mm-hmm. is this tom cruise doing all this shit and then like i read up about it and i was like wow like no wonder there are so many conspiracy theories because you could literally make that stuff up and like you could frame somebody yeah yeah you know? i mean if if they had waited another say two or three years to do ghostbusters the the new one they could have easily had an actor say all the lines make all the movements and just superimpose harold ramus over it and you <clears throat> wouldn't know the difference sure but the legalities of that i'm I, i'm sure have to be astronomical because now you're talking about not hiring somebody, but putting a public image out there of them mm-hmm. doing things that they didn't do that maybe they wouldn't have agreed to do in a script or, or exactly. you know, think about the porn world. I mean, people are going to be superimposing who they really want to be with. I mean, it's just, it's this kind of, we're at a level now where it's getting dangerous. I Wait think. a minute, go back to the porn. <laughs> 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 I never thought about that. That's wild. Yeah. You could just like, you can now have you the soupy do... sales porn you always wanted. <laughs> a deep fake of having two people fucking each other <laughs> that would never in the million years. Like, that's that's wild. You know that whoever has that software has done that at least once. Oh, yeah. At least once. My God, that's crazy. It is. It really is. But getting back to reality, uh, <laughs> one one song that, like I said, I, I felt that the song Ghostbusters was kind of an empowering track. You know, it made me feel like I could take on something. <clears throat> yeah, There's another one uh, that makes me feel like that even more. And I was trying to remember exactly where it was. I think it was, it was one of maybe the montages when they were chasing the ghost, but the song Saving the Day mm-hmm. uh, was, was another one where I'm kind of like, Okay, this is this is a pretty pretty powerful song. So let's hear a little bit of that. just something about that I'll, I'll tell you the story i relate it to uh growing up in michigan we used to have an amusement park well it's still there it's called cedar point in ohio one of the biggest theme parks in the country they're one of the ones that has to like every year to they break the record for the tallest coaster or the fastest coaster or you know whatever um we we went there in probably 85 or 86. And I, I love the atmosphere of an amusement park, but I don't like rides. I hate that feeling in my stomach. So I'm not a roller coaster guy. I've been on a couple, but it's more because I hear a song like this and I get all pumped up and I'm like, I can do this, you know? And I remember we were there and it was getting towards the end. They were getting ready to close and everybody wanted to go on the log ride one more time. And I was like, I love going around in the little log, but I hate the hill at the end. Mm. You know, but I was like, everybody wanted to go. I was too young to be left on my own. So either they didn't go or I had to go with them. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to, you know, hold everybody back from getting to go. So I put this song in my head and I was like, give me a minute. And I started thinking about this song. I'm like, all right, let's do it. 
and then we went wow. on the log ride. That's the that's a, a thing I love about music is the power it has to really make us feel any way that we want to, which is yeah. why you should never listen to old country music because you'll just be <laughs> suicidal. <laughs> yeah, no, this um, I I th- this song just like reeks of the eighties. Like it's oh, um, yeah. I, I it's great when I hear a song like this. All I think of is just like yeah, this would this would be great and like a like an 80s party mix or something like that because it's just like you know you it makes you want to dance or something Mm -hmm. it is very danceable yeah and and i mean the 80s percussion that's you know i just picture a guy sitting there with those triangle simmons drums and you know like almost like watching a duran duran video except with this song uh but it does have a very very 80s feel to it and you know the movie i mean in 84 we were really at the height of the British New Wave invasion. So there was mm-hmm. so much synth music going on out there and new synths were coming out a lot around this time. So very, very predominant in the, in the music world and especially in film soundtracks. But then like, this isn't a total 80s soundtrack because then you also have that that uh, kind of piano driven song as well. Mm-hmm. Are you talking about cleaning up the town? Um, I think I am. Let's listen to that. What a classic 50s sounding song, you know, yeah. up tempo, great walking bass line, nice shuffle. Yeah, I mean, that's like, uh, I mean, it's it's 80s in the way that it sounds like, uh, I, I mean, I, I guess you could say it's very Stray Cats kind yeah. of uh, sounding uh, because they were doing that kind of thing in the 80s. But I mean, like completely different from the kind of that synth pop stuff Mm -hmm. or even like the ghostbusters theme which was very like synth heavy and this is like more of an old-fashioned 50s like almost like a a blues brothers chase scene sounding type of thing Mm -hmm. um it's it's rockabilly it's it's like yeah yeah rockabilly rockabilly 50 song um i love the comparison to the stray cats because that's that is spot on yeah it's such an eclectic score because i mean you look at like the theme song for the movie is is like uh you know a, a nice 80s pop song then you've got this which uh if i remember right when they get the call to go to the hotel when they, yeah. before they meet Slimer, this is the song they're playing while they're like getting ready and sliding down the pole and yeah, yeah, and all that. So it's and like getting to the hotel. Yeah, you have no idea where the score is going, right? But I mean, I, I feel like it's um, it 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 kind of encompasses everything in the in that era too, because like I said, like the the Stray Cats were doing this, so this wouldn't be too far off, like to be included in the soundtrack. And then you have the more like synthy stuff in there, which was very uh, timely um, mm-hmm. for 84. Um, so it, it all, it all fits together um, because I think that, you know, they must've been looking at like what was popular at the time. And even though this style was way different from the previous song that we had just heard, it, it goes together. I kind of feel like this kind of music has never really gone out of style too. I mean, we may, we may have had more focus on things during different eras like disco or rock and roll or whatever, Mm -hmm. but I kind of feel like this style has always been somewhat present. Yeah. 
you know. Um, but it's it's just interesting because you go from synth now to to rockabilly and you know just and, and then between this we've got little bits of underscore. But um, when we think about uh, one of the scenes, you know, if I were scoring this movie, having these songs in it, when we get to the point where Peck shuts down the power grid. I would think, you know, you see all the ghosts flying out, being released out into the city. I would have probably thought about something intense, maybe something along the, the line of the 50s, maybe a little comedic or um, definitely up-tempo, you know, to, to show some kind of chaos. But what they picked was this song, Magic, which I really like the song, but it really is contrast to what we get with the more comedic music. Mm-hmm. So this is what they're playing when all the lights are coming out of the the fire station, and, and yeah. this this is a darker turn for the yeah. score. For one, that's a really weird change in the song to go from that chorus to this segment without some kind of bridge or you know something. Just all of a sudden, it's dark. You know, yeah. uh, it's kind of a cool change, but just it's it's almost like the way the sky goes dark in New York all of a sudden. It's almost like that kind of abrupt change musically as well. Yeah. But I've always loved this part of the song, you know, and then just all the visuals that go with it. The the skeleton thing driving the cab, Slimer shows up in the hot dog stand, all of that. Yeah, yeah. But what was confusing about that scene to me was that some of the ghosts are like ethereal and other ones are physically there, like the cab driver. There's a physical thing inside the cab. Yeah. So I didn't really understand what they were doing with that. Yeah, me neither, unless they were kind of establishing that there were uh, a couple of different types of ghosts. Like you could have mm. the, uh, you know, the ones, the, the the floating apparitions or whatever, but then you have the physical ones, like maybe like the the skeletons or the zombie dead body things or whatever that maybe rose from the dead and can physically you know, um, like, uh, like drive a cab. Right. The other thing I wondered too, was, you know, a lot of the ghosts look like people, you know, you see between the movies, there's like a jogger that they catch, uh, in the trap as he's running by and you see the yeah. cab driver was the skeleton, the decayed skeleton of a person. Um, mm-hmm. what was Slimer supposed to be in real life? Like John Belushi? <laughs> <laughs> well, but it, it was it was a, a a nod to him, but I mean, as a as a character, like as a ghost, what was he a ghost of? Because he yeah. didn't really look like a person. Yeah. So he I was, didn't. Yeah, he was just a, a a thing. Yeah. So they had some ghosts that were like monsters, and some ghosts that were like people. Right. But what would the monster be a ghost of? I mean, cool visual effects, but thinking from the storyline, like it 
that's kind of what threw me and made it a little more, a little less legitimate and a little more sci-fi than trying to be like a, a representation of what it would happen if this were to occur. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a, that's a pretty good point. Like, I don't know what Slimer was supposed to be, I guess, a mo- like a, a monster mm-hmm. or like, uh, you know, maybe like a lovable monster. Right. Well, and then, and then I think in the real Ghostbusters cartoon, he was like part of the team. Yeah. He was like yeah. a pal. <laughs> Cause why not? Well, I mean, it's a kid's show at this point. Well, that's true. Yeah. I guess if, if they trap, you're like, all right, well, you got me. I'm as well. May as well not be in this trap primes. anymore. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the other thing, too, that you had mentioned. Um, I never thought of this movie as a sci-fi movie. Mm-hmm. But when you just said that, or a sci-fi or a horror movie, I always thought of it as a comedy, even during the darker parts of it. Oh, yeah. But but that kind of like raises like a good question. Is it like uh it it is kind of like a like an occult sci-fi-ish type of theme to it, but it doesn't it doesn't really feel that way. Like even with some of like the, even with some of the soundtrack, like the, I think it was the second song that you played, which sounded very like synthy. That's very mm-hmm. like a synth is a, a very kind of sci-fi type of, uh, you know, score or soundtrack or whatever. But this, this movie really didn't like, I think that's another thing about it is, is that it kind of transcends like being like, uh, like being pigeonholed into a, a, a genre, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe other than than comedy or like a classic 80s or what, whatever you would want to identify it as now. But it's like, I, I guess it was um, it would be really um, it would really fall into like, I guess, sci fi. But it's it's really it's not like I yeah, think they it, did it so well that they kind of like separated themselves from that because it's not really mm-hmm. it's not a sci fi movie. It's not a horror movie. Um, yeah, and in in general, I felt it was a comedy too. But when you when you ha- start having things that kind of cross the line of reality, like if you if you just gave me all human looking ghosts, yeah, you know, uh, like in in the scene in the second one when the Titanic uh, lands and all the people are walking off of the Titanic, they're all people, you know. But when they show like this monster at the Arc de Triomphe and he's like sticking his head through the the notch, mm-hmm. and I'm like, okay, but that's kind of sci fi because now we're talking about monsters and not people ghosts yeah so there wasn't this giant monster that lived on the earth and we destroyed him and now he's walking around as a ghost right where did this come from this is getting a little more sci-fi so in general yeah it's a comedy but those elements made kind of pulled me out of that and made me go well it does have a little bit of a crossover in, in these moments oh there definitely are moments of crossover but i would not never say like hey let's watch a sci-fi movie how about ghostbusters <laughs> like <laughs> right, yeah. you know you don't want to um Something else that I thought of too was is like the the original uh, when they were talking about the the blueprints of the building, right? And the the mm-hmm. architect, what was it? Was he uh, Evo Shandor? Shandor. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you've ever seen the, um, I think it was like um, it was um, I don't know if it was a meme or something. Somebody had made a meme of it saying that originally, like in the movie, and I don't know how true it is mm-hmm. that they were gonna have they they were gonna have Paul Rubens play evo shandor who was oh, the wow. architect of the building uh-huh. and he was described as a slender man wearing a gray suit and the meme was of him dressed up as peewee herman like <laughs> on top of the the block like as gozer kind of going like this like in his peewee <laughs> thing with the guys pointing the guns at him and i thought it was the funniest thing because i'm like if that was true then that's pretty wild concept 
Oh, that is, I love that. I should probably say, I, I'll send that to you if I can find it, but it's like, yeah, um, please do. Like, That'd be funny. Yeah. Like I said, I don't know how, um, how true that is, but it was definitely like, it made for an interesting meme. Mm-hmm. Oh, I would love to see that. You know, I, and I would have thought, I don't know, like when people write, I don't always know where they come up with names, Yeah, you know? Um, it's it's kind of interesting when you hear sometimes like, oh, well, well, we just did an anagram of this person's name or we kind of did an offshoot of their name. Like it would have been kind of neat to do Ivan Reitman's name as as the director and and make him like the evil guy for the whole yeah. thing. Uh, but yeah, that's that's fun. No, that would have been a cool, uh, a cool scene. I'm sure that was a lot that they wrote that they ended up cutting out because so much of it, of it was improv that they probably ended up with a lot more footage than they had originally anticipated. And really had to scale it back. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Actually, I'm just looking this up really quick. Wee Herman was the original choice for Gozer in the Ghostbusters. Okay, yeah, the char- the character is Evo Shandor. Yeah, so there, yeah, so there actually was some, I guess, some discussion or some lore about it. Mm-hmm. Could you imagine um, if they they go through all this stuff and they get up to the top of the building and they're ready to take on whatever's up there and it's Pee Wee Herman? Well, <laughs> you I, know, <laughs> I think that I think though that like the choice that they made for Gozer was was brilliant. It actually was very that was the part that did take me into a darker part of the movie because it mm. was like to um I, like I can't remember the um the uh the the actress the like her the origin she was like not not from america but like a like a swedish model or something like that mm-hmm. she was like yeah. a model and like you know the at the time you know that kind of bridget bardot like you know haircut and everything like that and so they just did her up in like this kind of glamorous costume and then with like the just the pale face and the red eyes it's just mm-hmm. like i don't know where that came from but i mean it was just like the look was very tied to the 80s like you could just be like okay like i can like i can believe that they said yeah they they chose like an 80s like uh, a fashion model or supermodel Mm -hmm. for this or whatever but whatever inspiration there was for that it was like it was it was really unique i mean i haven't ever seen like a i guess a, a, a character like that anywhere else and i i think that's where like kind of things being tied to the time or like maybe necessity is the mother of invention type of thing. Like instead of relying on old tropes or like, all right, so we're going to make Gozer look like, you know, this old universal monster or something like that. Yeah. I feel like they came up with this whole new concept, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and that's one of the things that I love about this movie is, is that it's just like, there aren't really a lot of recycled concepts in this from, from at the time or anything that I can find anyways. And I mean, I'm, watched a lot of old, you know, horror movies and, you know, mysteries and sci-fi and stuff like that from like years before. So, I mean, it's like, if, if that inspiration was taken from anything, it's lost on me. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I love the costume design that they had for her. Um, I love that she kind of looked like a British new wave singer, you know, yeah. to say like she could have been in a band and and you wouldn't have thought twice about the way that she looked if she was a member of like a flock of seagulls or something. Or like, you know, you the know. arrhythmics or yeah. <laughs> she could have been like the, the vocalist before Annie Lennox. <laughs> but I, I think about that section of the movie a lot because 
the thing that I think is one of the most brilliant parts of this movie would, was the introduction of the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. And the way that they brought it about, like there's four people, they've got stuff on their minds. And when somebody tells you, don't think of anything, you're going to start thinking of things like whatever it is that's nearest to your mind you're, is going to come into focus. It's impossible to blank, or at least it is for me to blank out my mind and think about nothing. Yeah. The randomness of the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man is the best part of it. But yeah. I mean, for, for them to say, you could choose your doom by whatever randomly pops into your head. How do you clear your mind to not think about something that probably would lead you to something you're scared of? Like whether it would be a spider or if you're afraid of scorpions or snakes or bears or whatever. Right. Like J. Edgar Hoover. J. Edgar Hoover, terrified <laughs> of him. If we think of J. Edgar Hoover, J. Edgar Hoover is going to go and kill us. <laughs> and right there, that should have been the thing. Because yeah. he thought of J. Edgar Hoover. So how was that not the choice? Because maybe you had to internalize the the choice. Like he was talking about it, but he wasn't thinking about it. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I think there had to be some kind of like, all right, we'll just accept it there. Because J. Edgar Hoover had to have popped into his head <laughs> to pop out of his mouth. So that would have been the choice. But that wouldn't have been fun. You know, no, giant no. J. Edgar Hoover coming down the street. <laughs> who cares? It would have been ridiculous. But it, it, a giant Pee Wee Herman would have been funny. Well, the the other part too, and and again from seeing this movie so many times, another kind of if you blink you miss it line was when they're just like, "All right, the destructor has been chosen," and then Bill Murray turns around and goes, "Whoa, whoa, nobody chose anything." Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, he, he said, "Nobody, that, didn't nobody." He? he didn't say nobody chose anything. He said nobody chose anything. He did say that. You're right. And I and never look, thought about that. Yeah, like it just like the 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 uh the the horrible grammar is the thing that that made me laugh. And I don't know if yeah. I had like noticed I definitely didn't notice it when I was a kid, but you know, yeah. upon further viewing when he said that, I thought it was one of the funniest lines because he's just like, Oh, nobody chose anything. And I'm like, <laughs> that's great. But I'm wondering if like uh, you know, he um, you know, Bill Murray threw that in uh kind of improv to kind of like dumb down the character a little bit, you know, mm -hmm. make him because I mean, he's obviously a smart guy, but he likes to goof yeah. around. But I think it also kind of like brings him down a couple of levels like, yeah, he's really not that intelligent. He doesn't really, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, he can he can spin a good yarn. He can seduce women, all this other stuff. But like at grammar, it's not, you know, he's kind of kind of dumb in that department a little bit. It's like he got his degree, but he didn't really earn his degree or didn't really understand a lot of the information. He just kind of skated by and got it. Yeah. Yeah. One of those yeah. things that kind of ties him to just being like, you know, uh, Joe six pack or whatever. Right. Yeah. I love the reveal of the marshmallow man. Yeah. I absolutely love how just all of a sudden you're hearing these giant footsteps and it was kind of like a Tyrannosaurus or, or like a Godzilla reveal. In a way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it was very, very well done. And then you just see a little glimpse of him as he as he creeps between the two buildings. And then all of a sudden, there he is after Ray says his name. Now we get the full shot of him. He's however many stories tall, probably delicious because he's made a marshmallow. <laughs> but it's like the angriest marshmallow I've ever seen. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean you know, when they start like firing the things at him, you know, when he's like when he's first walking down the thing, he's all like He's all happy and like mm -hmm. whatever. But I mean, 
that that scene is now iconic where he turns the corner and you see him full on with the buildings around him and everybody running around. And you're right. It's just like now that is something that I think is inspiration that's taken from like an old Godzilla monster movie. Yeah. Well, because um, the only thing you have to understand his scale is that we're hearing very loud footsteps. So he must be of some kind of immense proportion. Yeah. So kudos to the sound design team, but you don't really get a full understanding of what they're dealing with until that moment of the movie. Right. You know, which is just such a killer reveal. And I remember gasps in the theater, like actual people yeah. going, oh, wow, as if that were really there. You know, I mean, well, they're, they're so into it at that point that they're in this world. They're part of the Ghostbusters team and we've got to take him down. I mean, at the time, I mean, nobody had heard of that. You know what I mean? It's just mm -hmm. like uh, a giant. I mean, that's ridiculous. A humongous marshmallow man. It's like it was. um it, it was it was a totally new and original concept. Yeah, absolutely. That and they came up with. And I also love, I don't know if, if you caught this, but when they cross the streams and they basically defeat Gozer, did you see the look on the Marshmallow Man's face change? Yeah. To surprise, like, what? They can beat me? And they did. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. then he explodes all over everything. But I love that is one of the most precious moments in the movie to me is the look on his face. Yeah, where he was like he had the pissed look, and then he had the like the, the the Mister Bill look. Right, right. <laughs> it's it's almost like in those movies when the villains coming at you and they're angry, they're ready to just rip your face off, and then all of a sudden they feel the sword go through their belly and they can't move, and they just have that look of what the fuck just happened. Yeah, like I can't believe I was defeated. Yeah, how dumb am I that yeah. I let that happen? You know. Yeah. But I mean, I don't want to go into all the songs because most of them, I don't know where they show in the movie. And I, I think we really played the the ones that are the most important, you know, yeah. uh, relating to the scenes, because those are the ones that were really um, added to the height or the emotion, I think. Now, do you have the um, uh, now this is the soundtrack, but do you have any of the songs uh, from the from the score? I do. There's or, only, I think, one uh, that was from uh, the composer, and I think that was Hot Night, if I'm not mistaken. Let me uh, play a little bit of that. This this is, I think, the one either where uh, Bill Murray is trying to seduce Dana when she's possessed or uh, when she hooks up with Louis Tully. Okay. I have nope. no idea what nope. that is. That sounds actually more like a John Carpenter theme with yeah, those little sweeps say. in the background. That feels more like this was a reject from Big Trouble in Little China than it was <laughs> a Ghostbusters song. I don't remember this one. I was thinking more the um the the um I don't know if it was like the the Bankman theme that didn't 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 that kind of whimsical Elmer oh, Bernstein music. I think that might be the main title theme. Let me try that one. Yeah.
and now we've got yeah. classical, you know, uh, lighthearted kind of comedy classical music. That, I believe, was what they played when they were going into the library. Yeah, I think that was kind of like the um, I, I like I don't know what um what it's uh, called, but I associate that with being like kind of the the ghost must the the Ghostbusters like motif or their theme, like that kind of like whimsical. It's called the Ghostbusters main theme. Okay, there you go. Yeah, it's their mm. uh, their theme or their motif. Yeah. There is something interesting that I heard in there though, because as as kind of like poppy or or happy as that sounded, you had that kind of like minor kind of thing and dun 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 dun, mm-hmm. which kind of reminds me of which came out in the same year, which was the Nightmare on Elm Street theme. Oh yeah. Which kind of sounds really similar, which kind of, um, you know, if it was intentional or not intentional, kind of injects that a bit of that horror movie theme into it, but still keeping it kind of whimsical. Right. Because the, um, um, are you looking it up or? Yeah. Well, I want to see if it was Elmer Bernstein that scored that because I don't remember. Yeah. Um... Because I know that Nightmare on Elm Street was dun, 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 dun. Mm-hmm. You know, it kind of had that. Yeah, this was like a lighthearted version of that of that song. Yeah, kind um, of. It was it was Charles Bernstein. Hmm. Interesting. I don't, know, I don't know if they're related or not. That's interesting, though. Hmm. hmm. Interesting. Yeah. But I mean, it also could have been a. Um, it also could have been a um um the word that i'm looking for um like um like some like some kind of a motif that maybe um uh composers horror composers or music composers mm-hmm. were using around that time right. uh to to score like a certain like style or something like that um mm-hmm. I, I don't know how that works but you know maybe it could have but I mean, I just think it's interesting that in the same year, that sounds very, very similar. And there are yeah. two different types of movies. But, you know, there are, as we've seen in this soundtrack, there are elements of kind of like like a little bit of a darker edge or things that kind of like put you on edge a little bit mm-hmm. to 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 kind of take the um, to kind of take that lightheartedness out a little bit. And kind of give the movie a little bit of heaviness or a little bit of darkness where it needs it, but without it going, you know, into too scary of a place. Because I never remember watching this movie when I was young and being scared of it. Right. Even even when you got to the Gozer scenes or or the Marshmallow Man scenes, I never felt like scared. I was more like, wow, I wonder how they're going to get out of this. Yeah, like I, I just, yeah, I remember thinking like, well, like I was like totally invested in it. Like this, you know, yeah. it was like it was at, when they were up on the top of that building, they were like, this was another world. This was another mm. dimension. And yeah. um, it just it felt it felt massive and isolated and like, uh, yeah, like you were in like uh, the 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 never ending story or something like that. You were just in a different mm-hmm. planet, you know? And again, and, with um, the isolation, they, they took them from the, the crowd where there's safety in numbers up onto the roof where there's no way anybody can get to them if they need any kind of help, no medical, no nothing. Uh, right. There's no power. So they can't, you know, they can't take the elevator. Uh, you know, and this was a, a skyscraper. So however, I don't remember how many floors it was, but it was quite a bit. Pretty they big, had to yeah. climb to get up there. So again, that isolation factor 
comes into play as well. Yeah. But you're right. There's a lot of dark undertones in this piece that yeah. I really like. Uh, it's it's whimsical, but you feel like there's danger that you're trying to ignore. You're trying to stay in the happy place, but it's it's tapping on your shoulder. Yeah. Yeah, it is but, a good but, piece. But that would be like, I think, the last piece of music that I remember that I feel is identifiable that we would probably mm -hmm. want to you know, like yeah. discuss. Yeah. I have no idea what that hot night piece goes to. I'm going to have to go back and, and <laughs> check because I literally have absolutely no idea what that, <laughs> where that is in the movie. Yeah. When you play that, I'm like, I, I don't know this song. Like, uh... yeah, I'll let you know if I figure it out, but uh, yeah. And, and sometimes it could be that they needed an extra track or maybe there was a scene that got deleted, but uh, after they had committed to the soundtrack and the scene had been yeah. deleted after the fact and the music didn't make it into the movie. That yeah. that does happen from time to time, more so back then. Yeah. You know, because now they have a pretty good grip over what's going to happen before they agree to the final soundtrack. But yeah, all in all, man, this this movie has been there since I was, let's see, it came out in 84. So I was 12 when it came out. And it has been with me. It's been, it, you know, I I watched it at least two or three times a year. If not yeah. more, I'll put it on because it's just it's it's comfort food for me. You yeah. know, it's a great movie. As many times as I've seen it, I could probably quote the entire movie, but I still enjoy it. Like it's uh, like I've only seen it once or twice. It's familiar enough, but I I feel like it's still that enjoyable. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, um, this is. Um... It's it's really interesting that this is a movie like there are there are some movies that are made in in an era where I mean, the 80s is definitely an identifiable era. Like you'd be like, wow, that's so 80s. And I feel like this movie is in a lot of ways. I think, you know, a lot of it's in like the, the soundtrack. If you listen to some of the soundtrack music, you're like, yeah, that's super 80s. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. There's something almost timeless about this movie. Um, yeah. I don't know if it's like the the themes of the movie, um, uh, you know, being set in uh, in in down in, in like downtown Manhattan, mm -hmm. um, you know, which is basically I mean, yeah, of course, the city has changed, but essentially a lot of it's the same. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know. I don't know what it is about the the movie, but they just they they wound up making something that was timeless in terms of like, I, I think that if it was really tied to the time or or really dated it would be more interesting than it would be, you know, one of the most popular movies of all time. And I mean, the fact that they tried to, you know, made, do all these reboots off of it will just show you that it is, it is probably enough to tell you that it is, you know, up to that yeah, level. I agree. But, um, but yeah, there really is something that is, um, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, to everything, there's there's stuff that's dated, but it really doesn't feel dated. It just it feels I guess that's the best word I can use to describe it is it's just timeless. Yeah, I would agree. And interestingly, if this movie came out today, I think it would be a very dark, dark movie. There would be jump scares, which we do not really get in this movie. Yeah. I mean, they, they kind of did, I guess, a little bit with the library ghost, but it wasn't really a jump scare kind of movie because it wasn't a horror. Yeah. Um, I think that it would be really dark and it would probably have a very dark score and it would have gone straight to Netflix if it came out today. Yeah. If they were going to do like, um, you know, maybe like a, a, a shot for shot remake type of mm -hmm. thing of it. Um, yeah. I think that's the, <clears throat> the direction that it probably would have gone in is just something that 
technically would have been the same, but you know, you need you need to have all those original elements in there. You can't just recreate what the the whole team did. And I mean, think of it too, right? I mean, a movie isn't just the the actors or the director, it's everybody involved. Yeah. Everybody, you know. Yep. So I mean, you're talking about like collaboratively, like everybody that was on that set and involved in that movie, like it just the made the vibe what it was for lack Absolutely. of a better way of describing it. So I mean, down could, to set designers, costume people. I mean, imagine if we had all these great effects and everything, but the costumes just sucked. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah, if exactly. Dozer was just like wrapped in bubble wrap with a little bit of shaving cream on her or something like <laughs> it, it, it just would have, I mean, everybody that works on a movie plays an important role down to the extras. You know, all those extras that were on the street uh, at, at the base of the building when they went up there, you know, when the when the street opens up and they kind of fall into the street, that <clears throat> that false ending, you know, um, yeah. all those extras make a difference. Incidentally, one of those extras was Ron Jeremy. Believe it or not. You know what? I, I feel like I remember hearing that. Yeah. yeah. It, he's not really noticeable. He was just kind of there. But if you, if you know where to look, you could find him. But oh. um, I mean, even even the extras made a really big difference making that movie believable. You know, yeah. the woman that gets chased down the street by the ghost, the guy that owns the hot dog cart. You know, all of those people are so important to movies. Yeah. And I I just I, I don't think they could have done anything better with this. I, I really don't. Other than just that one change I would have made, changing out the violin player in the orchestra to <laughs> the guy from um yeah, you know, Money Pit. Uh other than that, I think this was a, a pretty flawless movie. Yeah, absolutely. And any chance somebody anytime somebody asks me where a, a set of stairs goes, I always say it goes up. <laughs> they go up. <laughs> another another one of my favorite, you know, favorite lines from her or from, uh, from the movie. But yeah, this is definitely a timeless treasure for me. I'm I'm, I'm glad that you enjoy it as much as I do. And mm, yeah. we've been able to really kind of dig in and appreciate a lot of the the little things about it. Because I think, you know, we tend to get to know something so well that we forget about some of the little things or maybe don't notice them anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of good to, you know, hear somebody else's perspective on the movie because I always watch it alone. So, uh, no, thanks, John. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, for me, too. I, I have to say that whenever we are on discussing um, any anything at all, like whether it's an album or, you know, pop culture, other things in pop culture, I feel like in these discussions, I pull stuff out that I'm like learning in the moment. Mm-hmm. Um because a lot of a lot of these discussions, it's like maybe it's in my head. And then when I'm talking to to you about it, um, like even even like listening to that theme and the Ghostbusters theme and being like, that's really similar to Nightmare on Elm Street. I never thought about that before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or like the the three main characters and like the different phases of childhood that they represent. You know, it, mm-hmm. it's like it's it's stuff like that that I think is uh, really um important and and fun about these conversations is that like you you take these these things that we've loved for so many years and we we kind of when when you dig into them you you just you find more stuff to be interested in or to pick apart and that's just really it just makes it even more interesting to be a fan of it and fun and i think i think that's a big part of what's worth having these conversations in the first place you know i mean i'm sure there's plenty of discussions about ghostbusters i mean the movies going on 40 years old and 
And I'm sure there's plenty of podcasts and interviews and speculation behind the scenes shit and all that. But you know, there's a there's a certain thing that happens when two people start digging into something and they'll find those little nuances or realize, like, oh, wait yeah. a minute, I never listened to this music in this context before. Now that I'm hearing it this way, I realize Nightmare on Elm Street comes to mind, you know. Right. Um, and I and I love that. Plus, I mean, I just enjoy talking about things I enjoyed experiencing in the first place. So that's always yeah. fun. And we got a threes company tie in uh, on top of all of that. Hell yeah. You can't go wrong with that. <laughs> no. You know? No, which is something I've been obsessively watching now that I've um I found it. It's um what what is the um this the the Chris was talking about, uh Chris L was talking about the Threes Company channel mm-hmm. that he found on uh his TV. I think it was on um um what's the what's that free station? Um, um oh, a TV PBS? or no, Tubi or something oh, like Tubi, that. It's yeah. like a, yeah, screen is stream screaming. I'm thinking about horror <laughs> movies. Yeah, something streaming, which I think I saw it on my that's what I sent to you guys the other night. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was that um I saw it up there and I clicked on it and I put it on and it's just just all threes company. It's just the threes company channel. So it's like I just have it on in the background now and I can't stop watching it. And it's like I wonder back to back to back, how long does it take them to get through the series? I don't know because the night that I sent it to you guys, um, I they were on the final episodes, mm-hmm. and then after the final episode, they went back to the very first episode, and that was what maybe like almost a week ago, and right. we're still, I'm still in the, I'm still in like kind of the mid Chrissy episodes. It's probably around like 1979. Oh wow, okay. Because the wild strawberries one was on last night. Oh, was it? Okay. That was a good one. Yeah. We were yeah, talking so, about that one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so they, I, that's uh, so fascinating. Yeah. So they don't go into threes a crowd. They just are doing threes company. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because after the final, final episode, like there was, you know, they have like, um, they have some uh, commercials or ads on and then boom, right to the very, to the debut episode. Who was the one that closed the? Was it Terry was the, the one that closed the door or was it Janet? You know what? I don't remember. I seem to think I thought it should have been Janet because she was the original tenant. Right. But I seem to think it was actually Terry that closed the door for the last time. Yeah. It, you know what it might have been? I Like I said, I only saw it like, you know, a few days ago, but it was, um, you know, I, I was kind of caught up in the... Uh, you know, the sitcom trope of them, uh, like the the looking around the empty apartment and looking at each other and just going like giving each other the nod, like, yeah, we're done. And then they yeah. shut the lights off and you close it and you're like, oh, the living room where all the hilarity ensued. R.I.P. <laughs> you <Right>. know, <laughs> oh, I bet I bet the tears on the other side of that wall, though, were were just flowing. Mm, I'm sure it had to be. You know, I, I was just the uh, the office ladies just got to the point in their show because uh, they're doing every, uh, one episode per week and they're doing it sequentially. And they just got to Steve Carell's last episode and, mm-hmm. you know, all about the the party and the cake and saying goodbye to him and everything. And they actually had a hard time shooting a lot of the scenes in that episode because people were just way too emotional over the fact that he was leaving the show. And I thought, yeah, I mean, though, they worked together for seven years and you see these people five, six days a week and yeah. you know, you go to your their houses, you get together for holidays and all that stuff. I mean, that's, that's not just a work buddy. You guys in, in situations like that, they become families like bands do. Yeah. 
you know, so to have that last episode or, or a major character leaving and knowing it before they're gone to actually shoot that episode where you say goodbye to them. Like, I can't imagine how difficult that is. Yeah. Yeah. With that promise of, Oh, we'll always keep in touch. And then like three months later, they're like, I didn't know he was working on this movie now. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You know, but no, this is always fun. I, I, I don't know which one we're doing next, what album or movie or three's company episode or what it'll be, but I'm sure it'll be a blast. I always have a great time when you come on the show. So once again, my friend, thank you very much. Thank you. I'm always, always happy to come on. It's always so much fun. Yeah. And I was recently uh, on the Deep Purple podcast reviewing, uh, what was it that we did? I was going to say Slaves and Masters, but it wasn't Slaves and Masters. It was... No, it was um, um, not uh, Black Wars Night, Rainbow. It was, yeah, it was Rainbow's final album. I should say their last album because you never know if there's going to be another yeah. one or not but yeah the stranger in us all that was the, the all, last yeah. one you were on yeah but we would mm-hmm. um yeah hopefully we'll hopefully we'll have you on again maybe you can do the the four-year interview i'd love to what what <laughs> my what is it? i love doing that that episode with you guys but one of my favorite things about that is that doogie white actually uh shared that we did the episode i thought that was really cool that he either listened to it or knew about it or yeah you know whatever. yeah that I don't is know the if, we heard any more from him but um no we'd have to ask nate yeah we'll have to do that yeah I'm curious but yeah it was it was a great time for sure and uh i'm sure you'll be back here and nate will be on again at some point and uh we'll we'll just keep the podcast rolling because yeah what else would we do nothing this is what we do <laughs> exactly so guys go check out the deep purple podcast as always links are in the show notes thank you for joining us for these well we're at like uh two hours and 50 minutes so i'm going to say three episodes that I'll uh, probably split this one into <laughs> instead of dragging it over like six months, which I could easily do. <laughs> oh, uh, man. Always welcome. Uh, thanks, John. Guys, check out the podcast. Thank thanks for listening. And we'll see you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.